It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. very special guest today, marking the 100th episode of ROI's Into the Corner Office podcast series, is Cheryl Batchelder. Cheryl is a passionate, purpose-led business leader and the former CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. She's known for her crisp, strategic thinking, a franchisee-focused approach, and superior financial performance. Guided by the servant leadership thinking of Robert Greenleaf, she believes highly caring, Collaborative leaders with big ambitions for the enterprise, and not themselves, generate the conditions for people to perform their best work. Cheryl's earlier career included brand leadership roles at Yum! Brands, Domino's Pizza, RGR Nabisco, The Gillette Company, and Procter & Gamble. And she also wrote a best-selling book, Dare to Serve. Cheryl holds a bachelor's and an MBA degree from the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University, and she and her husband, Chris, reside in Atlanta, Georgia, and attend Buckhead Church. Cheryl Batchelder, welcome into the corner office. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you. Ah, wonderful to have you here, too. And, uh, you know, this is so exciting because you are our 100th episode. And uh, we're going into our third year now uh, with the release of uh, number 100. And it's just so exciting. Um, as I think I mentioned in one of our earlier uh, meetings, you know, unfortunately, there's a dearth of, of women executives in the CEO position. So I'm so excited to be able to have someone so accomplished as you uh, with regards to your past history and hear your story, particularly as it relates to servant leadership and how crisis played a role in your continuing career. And uh, what we like to do, Cheryl, is always kind of start with the early years. So if you don't mind, let's roll back the time clock a little bit and tell us about, you know, where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Well, that's a big part of my life story. Mm. Uh, my family has been a very uh, influential part of uh, bringing me to this point in my life, every step mm. of my life. Uh, strong parents. I'm the oldest of four children. Oh. The fun thing about my parents is they had a huge sense of adventure about them. And so uh, they took us, their four children, on a worldwide adventure trip called our upbringing. Uh, wow. We started on an Air Force base in Columbus, Ohio, is where I was born. Yeah. Uh, promptly moved to Alaska for an exciting winter in the frigid north. <laughs> Do you remember it? Not <laughs> at all. 
Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, then back to uh, my parents' home state of Indiana, where my father uh, came out of the Air Force and joined, uh, began his career as an engineer yeah. for General Motors. Um, but the big adventure began when I was nine, and mm. I would have had two sisters and a brother by that point. Right. Um, we moved to Silicon Valley with a oh. handful of people who saw the opportunity for the uh, technology to change in electronics. Um, and that really was my father's entire career okay. was yeah. learning how to manufacture sophisticated electronics. Was he an engineer, Cheryl, or what was his profession? Uh-huh. He was an engineer by uh, training, you know, basically math and science guy to the core. Right, right. Um, he ended up leading the uh, build-out of 16 uh, electronic factories in Asia wow. from 1974 to 1985. Whoa, that's early days. Yes, really the beginning. And it sounds like mom was pretty busy with home life. Did she have a profession before having children or afterwards? My mother was a school teacher, school teacher, um, cool, and uh, a good school teacher. Uh, yeah. She particularly enjoyed special needs children, mm. um, and she was uh, great at using those teaching skills with us at home. Uh, home was a well-planned adventure with mom of arts and crafts and piano oh. lessons and ballet and all kinds of activities. Fantastic. And then when we began moving around the world, she really was the brave one who taught us how to move to new places and meet yeah. new people right, and right. Uh, take the city bus and all yeah. the fun things we learned to do at a very young age. That's awesome. Well, that special needs teaching is so unique. One of my daughters uh, does the same. She works with kids that are on the autism scale, but also with other difficulties. And, you know, it's been her life's work. She started as a babysitter when she was 10 and now she's in her late 20s and she just loves that work so much but it takes a lot out of you did your mom pour a lot into those kids yes uh, my mother was the daughter of a special needs mm. teacher um and so she's really been in that environment her whole life and she just loves um young people uh, mm. with special needs or not she wants to yeah. come alongside and help them discover uh, reading and discover uh, curiosity about learning history. And uh, she's very patient, very kind. Mm. Um, and uh, to be honest, she pretty much loves everybody under 10. I joke that, you know, <laughs> when my kids became teenagers, she didn't like them nearly as much, but neither did I. <laughs> Sounds very similar to my Natalie. I love yeah. it. What kind of lessons do you remember from mom and dad in those early years? Were there some specific things that inspired you um, from their teachings? We have a real history of dinner table stories mm. in our family. Yeah. And I yeah. often bring this up to young parents. Uh, you have no idea how much young kids are taking in as you sit with them at the dinner table because right. you're debriefing the day, right? Yeah. And yeah. you're talking about what happened and why it happened and how to think about it and how to decide and what truth is and all mm. kinds of important things. And so... Um, that was my experience. Most of my life lessons happened at a dinner table as we yeah. either talked about, uh, I got in a little squabble with a friend at school. How did I resolve it? Or my dad would say, we have a business issue and it looks like this and here's how we solve it. Right, um, right. And he would let us ask questions. My mom and yeah. dad raised four children who became presidents or CEOs of businesses. Fantastic. And All four of you. All four of us. Fantastic. And I, I just think wow. we were sitting at the table learning 
uh, not just the skills, but the values by which you make important decisions that impact other people. Yeah. What role did Christ play in your upbringing? Well, I say I've been prayed over for generations and generations and generations. <laughs> I, I love genealogy. Um, yeah. And so I love the history of my family, but I actually knew all four of my grandparents. Oh, and fabulous. they were active shepherds of our faith yeah. development. And I remind grandparents of that. You have no idea how influential you could be for generations to come by breathing in. Absolutely. My, my maternal grandmother is one of my favorites. She was five foot nothing and an uh, immigrant from Holland. And boy, did she love Jesus. <laughs> you know, that had such a lasting impact on me. Did you all live nearby? Were, were your grandparents close to you? you? I mean, you moved around a lot. Well, one of the benefits of, yeah. of all this world travel is we usually yeah, came home yeah. for the summer and saw grandmas. Nice. Uh, nice. So a lot of time. And then when we got older, we often stayed at grandma's house, uh, either during college breaks and those kinds of things. My sisters right. both uh, did summer jobs at grandma's house. So uh, my father's mother in particular, we spent a lot of time with, mm. and she literally had a scripture or a hymn to any question you ask her. How cool uh, is that? You know, Grandma, yeah. why do you leave your door unlocked at night? You know, and she would just immediately say, well, does not God care for me more than the lilies of the field? Yeah. <laughs> there was an answer to everything. That, I love uh, it. Confirmed I love it. her faith. And to this day, I keep a Methodist hymnal on my piano in my house, which is right in the center of our living area, uh, because it reminds me of how of anchored she was yeah. in praising God, in praying to God in uh, honor, you know, honoring and trusting his word mm. in her life. Uh, when she died, the pastor said, I think we have all met a Proverbs 31 <laughs> woman and there's no question. There's Lost no question. a saint, right? Oh yes. gosh. Now, uh, were both your parents Methodist and did you grow up that way as well? Um, my mother was Presbyterian okay. and my yeah. father was Methodist. So, and they're very similar traditions. They are. Yeah. I grew so, up Presbyterian too. So I know the background. Yeah. Cool. And moving, we often went to one or the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then later in life, we uh, uh, shifted to the non-denominational um, church when we okay. were living in Louisville. We had the opportunity to uh, join Southeast Christian, a very large uh, non-denominational church. Yes. And we've come to really enjoy the teaching in a non-denominational church because it helps us be uh, teachers to those who haven't experienced a church upbringing. Right, uh, right. You know, it's a constant training and outreach. Um, so that's where cool. we've been. Other than mom and dad, and, and obviously both your grandparents, who else were, you know, some of your early uh, inspiring mentors, coaches, teachers? Do you remember some of those and some of the lessons learned? Well, you know, I, I that's a great question. Um, and there are a few that came later in mm. life. Yeah. But I would tell you, when you move a lot, um, your family becomes pretty high on that list of people yeah, who of uh, mentors you and helps you solve your problems and make your right. life decisions. Because um, I, don't, I have no friends that I grew up with in elementary school because I, I left so long ago, right? I didn't grow up in a town well-connected to many people. So right, right. family is uh, very much the premier place that I got mentored. My dad in particular, uh, who literally took me with him on business trips oh. and taught me how to do things and explained faith principles at work 
to me, uh, very important that? person. Yeah. And every job I ever accepted, I checked with him first. Wow. Um, was that some international travel as well? Did he take you to some yes. of those plant operas? Really? In Asia yes. and elsewhere? I've Fantastic. been all over wow. plants in Japan. And this was when you were a kid, teenager, single digits, yes. a little older. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Were you a good student in school, Cheryl? I was a straight A student. I say that with a, <laughs> one of those huh? embarrassment, right? Because I, there's other things I could have learned besides straight A's. But well, it was important, yeah, obviously, was, and and given the moving around a lot, did did you spend much time with sports or music, theater? Were there other things that you did outside as well that you had an interest well, in? I won't tell you my age, but I'm pre Title Nine, and and women just okay. weren't playing sports, and yeah, it, it yeah. has been a detriment many times. Like mm. first time, my boss said we're going to do an end run, and I, I had no idea what to do, whether to jump or crouch <laughs> or spin. I I was um, lost. Um, so sports would have been really helpful, and the rest of my siblings did play sports. We're six, all six feet tall. We're pretty good at oh, basketball, wow. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I didn't play sports, and most of what I've learned about sports has been in the business world because it is right. such an important part of the yeah. conversation. Learn the teamwork a little later. Other other things that you were involved in, again, musical, theater, did you have odd jobs growing up? What were some of the things you did in your free time? Um, music has been a very important part of mm. my life. Um, in fact, one of the funny short pieces that's ever been written about me was in, I think it was the New York Times that uh, wrote about the piano uh, person the, that studied piano and ended up selling chicken uh, for a living. They found that really amusing, but I, but it is true. I was a music major at Indiana University, really? um, uh. practicing eight hours a day, hoping to one day be a choral conductor or choir okay. teacher, something yeah. in that field. Loved music, loved piano. Um, and it, it wasn't meant to be, but music was a, a very important discipline in my life, teaching me right. to put effort into things. Um, you know, 10 hours of practicing is a good discipline. Okay. Um, yeah. It was difficult. The theory, the history, the things you had to learn in mis music school were just as difficult as any other uh, liberal arts challenge. So I often feel very grateful for music. Yeah. Um, and it's a huge part of the enjoyment in my life today. I'm very active say, in the if you, arts You've today. continued with that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yes. What about entrepreneurial things? Were there, was that important, you know, earning some extra spending money uh, or maybe saving to help go to school? Well, I, I definitely liked the opportunity uh, to contribute and the opportunity to make a little money. Mm -hmm. um, my first entrepreneurial venture is I got a job teaching knitting lessons at oh. 12. <laughs> at 12. I love 12 it. 12 years old. Who taught you to do that? Was that grandma? One of your grandmas? No. I no? went to a little shop um, and learned how to knit. My no mother kidding. was quite good at it. sewing and other yeah, things. Yeah. So I'd seen this before. But I learned how to knit first. And then she asked me to teach the beginning classes on the weekend. Oh. And she would pay me in yarn. Well, I'm telling you, that was a deal. <laughs> I started making everybody a sweater from then on. I, I love it. I love it. You don't it. have to buy any more Christmas presents. There you go. Um, yeah, they got your Christmas and birthdays lined up. Oh, that's awesome. How many years did you do that? Yeah. Opportunity. Two or three. Two or three. Yeah. Good. Did, um, I mean, not to be, you know, uh, uh, characteristic, but again, we both grew up at a certain age. Were you a babysitter as well? Was that some of the things oh, you did growing goodness, up? Oh, my goodness, yes. And, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, in fact, when I was uh, just a few years after the knitting job, I decided I wanted to go see Europe with my oh, girlfriend. And wow. for some reason, my parents said, 
uh, maybe they didn't think I'd do it, but they said, if you raise the money, you can go. And so That's all I the did, motivation you needed. I washed huh? cars and I babysat <laughs> and I swept streets. I, I would That's do anything. Awesome. How old um, were you at the time, Cheryl, when you took that trip? 15 when 15? I raised the money and 16. Oh they made me wait for my 16th birthday. That is and young. Very my young. Yes. My girlfriend and I went. It was the age of the youth hostel thing. Of course, right. And uh, wow. my dad said, you can't wear jeans and you can't take drugs and you can only take one bag. Um, and so <laughs> I had no jeans, which of course every other human on the planet was had wearing. It. And of course, back then the uh, Europeans w- would have loved to buy the jeans from you, I'm sure, if you brought that's them That's right. Along. I think my dad thought <laughs> drugs and jeans were one thing. Were, were, one, so, of the, one of the kind. They yeah, came my, in the pockets, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but and it was an adventure. We went, how many, yeah, how many we months? We went for six weeks, oh which at a time, no cell phones, never oh, called yeah. home. yeah. Right. And literally when I flew back to San Francisco, my parents met the plane. Um, That was it. And I probably didn't tell them much about that trip until I was 40. (laughs) Well, we won't get it. We'll save that for another podcast, (laughs) but I'd love to hear that. We'll do do CEO's vacations. I love that idea. Yes, we were young and fun. Oh my gosh, what good fun. So you went to Indiana University. How, How did you make the choice of college? Was that where you kind of ended up in high school or was there a special reason why uh, you went there? Well, both my parents had graduated from Indiana University, and they actually met in the Sigma Kappa sorority house. Uh, My dad was a houseboy. My mom was uh, an officer of the sorority. Awesome. Um, So they moved to Hong Kong in my senior year of high school, and they said, we think it'd be a good idea if you lived near grandma, so why don't you go to Indiana? I was a California girl at that point. I didn't think that was such a fabulous idea. But when I got into music (laughs) school, which is one of the best schools at Indiana, um, I said, okay, I'll do the thing they suggested. And I went back there for music school. Ended up, they have one of the best business schools in the country too. So it worked out well. Awesome. Um, So did did you get a dual degree, both um, uh, music as well as business? Or what did you do? No, I left the music school at the end of my sophomore year. Okay. And I got in the honors program of the business school and got a degree in marketing and finance, bachelor's and MBA in two years later. Fantastic. Um, cool. So I was pretty intense about school. And yeah. uh, because my family was overseas, I didn't have to, you know, go home for the summer. So I did a lot of summer school right. and finished right. early. So right. I had a master's in business, an MBA degree at 22 years old. Nice. Um, I didn't have a lot of work experience, which I would tell people right. today, you know, I think right. you're, you benefit from that work experience. You didn't do the internships that a lot of folks do. I the did three of them, actually. You did? Okay. All right. Yes. Uh, and who but were I, they with? Um, let's see. My first one was with Piper Aircraft Corporation. Okay, sure. I, I did them. a market research project uh, about small business jets for oh, them. That was very interesting, interesting interviewing yeah. CEOs on why they do or don't. Uh, buy a jet. Um, And then I did a very interesting, different uh, internship at the Dayton Hudson Corporation, which was a department store company as a buyer, an assistant buyer, buying bathrobes. Um, And I often say I discovered my career by discovering what jobs I didn't like. I didn't (laughs) like market research and I didn't like um, 
being a buyer. And yeah. so I went into brand management after I got out of school That's at right. Procter & Gamble. We share um, that trajectory. I started yes. in brand as well a couple of years after you, but uh, great company. And you know, it's funny you say that. I thought I wanted to go into banking. I was getting an international business career. I like money. I like business. I did an internship, believe it or not, with Bank of America when Apple was still private. And that was one of their clients. Hated it absolutely aborted. I thought I would never go into banking again, but I tell kids the same thing. Go try some things that you think you like. Better to find out when you're young, right? That you don't absolutely. like it and help narrow the field. So so did you move to Cincinnati then directly from uh, yes. Indiana? Yeah. Fantastic. Did they recruit there or how did you connect with P&G? Um, they recruited at Indiana. We had a really yeah. good placement department awesome. um, and uh, it turned out to be a really good idea, a great foundation for my career because brand yeah. management was truly my love and Terrific. led my career. And then I also met my husband at Procter & Gamble. Oh, you so did? It was okay. A two Got for it. one. Yeah. Was he in brand as well or yes. where was he? Yeah. Fantastic. He so Procter gives people leadership lessons, you know, leadership responsibilities fairly early on. What were, what were some of the leadership lessons that you learned in those early days from, you know, bosses and mentors you had at Procter? Proctor at that time was an incredible training company. They literally uh, took a very, you know, straight out of school green kid in me, taught me how to run a meeting, how to make a budget, how to analyze business results. I remember so many skills training uh, opportunities there. And then time management, um, organization. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, then they, yeah. they really did teach you how to behave. You know, what, how do you act at the company Christmas party? How do you <laughs> right, uh, speak right. at a meeting with senior executives? I mm. mean, uh, the full gamut. How do you dress for a meeting with the ad agency? That's so true. Um, they gave me an assignment once that I look back on just um, with total embarrassment. They sent me to New York <laughs> to tell Dancer Fitzgerald's sample, a major advertising agency, yeah. what yeah. P&G expected from their ad agencies. I was dumber oh than rocks, 23 <laughs> years old, and here I am preaching the P&G way to this uh, major league advertising agency. I mean, they must have gone home that night and... <laughs> Shook their head. <laughs> Were they a new but agency to PG? Is that why? They, they must have been new yeah, to the fold, yeah, um, or, or your or brands, new management yeah. team, or something right, right, that yeah. caused that. Oh but you think about what they entrusted me oh, with, yeah. right? It's that uh, incredible responsibility. Yeah. They were willing to let me make some mistakes and right. uh, do some uh, work on their behalf that was risky for them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was obviously the first place you started managing people, right, Cheryl, at Procter? You know, I didn't, um, I left at three years, so I Did didn't you? manage a brand for them. Yeah. I was an assistant. So my yeah. first brand management um, would have been at Gillette. At Gillette, right. And that was that was prior to it being a Procter company, correct? Correct. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about that. What, what was that first job and any lessons from those early management experiences of, of, you know, literally being responsible for others, which I'm sure Gillette gave you early on? Um, I was excited about that opportunity. Yeah. I often say I, I really have kind of a degree in consumer behavior, which is another way of saying I have a degree in human beings. I really <laughs> love to understand consumers and their people. Um, so when I had the opportunity to supervise people, I think I quickly um, dug into trying to figure them out, uh, mm. kind of understand their strengths understand where they were best suited 
Um, I learned pretty quickly that we didn't have to be best friends. They didn't have to like me or me like them. Um, But we had to work effectively. We had to set clear expectations. We had to have honest conversations. Um, It was my responsibility to give them candid and balanced feedback. It was their responsibility to deliver to the deadlines. I just learned a lot about how that works. Um, And when you're young, I think you have a lot of misconceptions about, you know, friendship being one, right? Because we weren't that far apart in age. Right, right. And the first couple of people that worked for me were quite different from me in interests and personality and style and um, it was a good lesson, right? You learn the cookie cutter doesn't work very well. No, very early on. Yeah. In yeah. fact, if you can look past the cookie cutter, you will have better teams because yes, it's. I, I'm a big believer in complementary teams, not clones. Right. Uh, right. Produce the best performance results, and I think I learned that early. Yeah. What are some of the best or, or perhaps worst lessons you've had from previous bosses? You know, no names need to be mentioned, but, um, you know, we've all seen that behavior in the past with folks that go, oh, goodness, that's a great lesson. I will never do that. Were there any of those that you had early on? Yes, this is really my answer to the mentoring questions. Yeah. I've been mentored uh, by writing down the lessons I learned from bad experiences. Mm. Um, and, and I mean, I physically writing them down, keeping a journal. Down, yeah, keeping yeah. a journal. Fabulous. Um, the most important one I wrote down is to always treat every single person with dignity, mm. whether they're male or female, top performer, bottom performer, smart supplier or vendor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it, boss outside. No matter yeah, what, yeah. they deserve dignity. Mm. And I I learned it from being personally publicly humiliated mm. in a business situation. Mm. Uh, stood up in front of other people and told that I was an underperformer in this particular oh situation. Oh. And I will never forget the sting of that public embarrassment. Um, And I never say the person's name when I tell that story because I would not want to embarrass them. No reason to. It would be horrifying if they understood that many years later, I still think about that day. Well, you know, we hear so often criticize in private, praise in public, and yet so many bosses, and I I was at P&G for eight, nine years, I saw the reverse of that more often than not. And, uh, you know, I did uh, too. And I, and I've, I've, I'd be honest with you. I've made mistakes in this arena where even in subtle ways where you didn't intentionally direct, um, uh, condescending comment, but maybe the way you looked at the person or the way you responded in tone. And, uh, I would remind people of the power of an apology, uh, because we are going to make mistakes, but you, you need to immediately apologize if you ever steal a person's dignity by treating them inappropriately. So true. Well, you've had a stellar journey. I mean, literally a who's who of, you know, successful and major companies in the U.S., starting at Procter, on to Gillette. You spent eight years at Nabisco. You went on to Domino's Pizza um, and then got into the retail uh, food business, of course, with Yum, and then ultimately your CEO at Popeye's. Did, Did you kind of have a feeling either, you know, maybe spiritually led or otherwise that you kind of wanted to get to the corner office or was it more enjoying the journey and seeing what laid out for you, Cheryl? I would say early on, um, roughly at the time I was at Domino's, I was working for a faith-based leader and Tom Monahan, the founder Mm. of Domino's. 
I, I really became convicted that work matters to God, yeah. that work has a purpose, that work is ministry. Mm. Um, and, and I became less conflicted about the decision to work because as a mother, right, I had to make a decision mm-hmm. about working, yeah. uh, being a competing uh, interest to being a good mom and a good wife. Um, it doesn't and, look like you took any time off, right? You you pretty much had your kids along the way, right? I did. A, yeah. a, I did take a couple of breaks okay. uh, that I always point out because I think women need to know there are times where it, it is the right decision to stop right, and right. take a deep breath. Maybe you need to recover. Maybe your family has a need. Right, I, I right. want people to always feel they have uh, power to do that yeah. when it's right to do. That's a calling too. Right, <laughs> um, sure. it's, work is not our only calling. And so, um, but I do think because I had family support um, and a strong faith that I early on realized that this workplace matters. Mm. And I I became convicted that I wasn't meant to be one of the people called to a village in Africa or to the health right. to a health profession. There's many good ways to serve God, but work is a very good way to serve God. Uh, he it is like any other place he puts you. There are many many people that need to know there is a God and that mm. they are valuable, that they've been created for a purpose. And mm. I eventually became a teacher of purpose and principles in the workplace because there was such a need for people to feel their work and they themselves were valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that really became kind of the mission of my, yeah. my career. Well, you mentioned working at um, Domino's with Tom, and, and you know he's famous, you know, for his uh, faith-based approach to business. W- was that where you really felt that you were, how do I say this, um, kind of more willing to, you know, uh, talk about your faith at work, or, or did that come earlier or later? You know, when when did that become uh, comfortable to you? I guess is the word I'm looking for. Yes, Tom uh, was very comfortable talking mm. about his faith yeah. all day long, yeah. all kinds yeah. of situations, yeah. um, and uh, very blunt about it. So <laughs> it, it really did uh, take away fear. The whole right. organization was encouraged to speak yeah. um, on their faith. In fact, one of the engineers one day walked in my marketing department office and said, Cheryl, are you ready to meet Jesus today? <laughs> And I remember looking at him and saying, actually not. I've got a not whole really. bunch of I've stuff got a couple of things do. on my project list. <laughs> oh, that's but, awesome. That's but awesome. to be in a place where you could, yeah, what a blessing. Right. Uh, it took a lot of the fear yeah, away yeah. of just being honest with people that this is an important part of my life and my beliefs. Right. And being comfortable uh, sharing why it's important. Um, yeah. Tom, so was it kind of from it, that point forward then you were more comfortable with it or had there been Absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, I was just yeah. going to tell a Tom story because okay. on, on yeah. my first day, he said, to work for me, you have to have read Mere Christianity. And I said, well, Ooh. I've read it. Yeah. And he goes, have you read chapter eight? Well, unfortunately, <laughs> I couldn't remember the title of chapter eight. Right, he says, okay, right. well, then we need to review. And he brought a copy out and he said, tonight, wow. read chapter eight. Well, it's the pride chapter. 
Mm. And that has become basically the foundation of all my leadership teaching is so cool. I yeah. didn't understand how deeply rooted pride is in every single thing we do as oh, human yeah. beings. Oh, yeah. And Tom embedded that like week one and reinforced Amazing. it in his teaching. Yeah. And even if I hadn't been a Christian, I think he would have changed my perspective forever <laughs> on the role of ego in right. business. Right. Right. Oh, that's fantastic. And then you transitioned there to Yum before going to Popeye's. Was that tough for you in your faith? You know, Yum, Pepsi, not not necessarily the one that would perhaps live or encourage people to live faith on their sleeve in the workplace, if that's a fair statement. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, some uh, things happen in your life for work and some right. things happen for family. You yeah. don't always know why you're being called to a so new true. assignment. Yeah. But um, Domino's got sold and Tom moved on and That's right. it was owned yeah. by new owners and the opportunity changed. So I was recruited by a competitor, Yum Brands. Yeah. Uh, they were a very well-respected uh, company for culture. That's and right. so while they weren't a faith-based, you know, family-owned company, yeah. they yeah. were well-renowned for um, a culture of developing leaders and Absolutely. they had very strong value plaques on the yeah. wall, and, you know, yeah. all that good stuff. So I was attracted to them. But I would tell you, I, I've been very public about the fact I only worked for Yum for uh, two years and I got right. fired summarily from my job. Um, so I had to conclude that that move was not about the job. It really was about our family. Um, And we became deeply involved uh, in our church. Our children were Mm. uh, well-educated there. Our whole family got uh, immersion baptized at Southeast on Easter Sunday, uh, the last year that we lived there, kind of as a a statement of where our family was in our faith development. It was very material to us. And uh, and has been life changing for each of us and our family awesome. in different ways. And so, you know, Louisville, which was the location, ended up being kind of a sending off point for mm. our entire family. Right. Um, it happened, the failure part of it happened to be the perfect training for what my Popeye's experience would ultimately be because if you take time to learn from uh, your trials and your failures, um, you will be prepared for the next God-given opportunity. And I didn't know I'd ever go back to a a leadership job again, but eventually that opportunity came forward in Popeye's and everything I put to work to make that company the success story Mm. it is today came from that little notebook of what went wrong. Um, You know, I was so impressed. I don't know if you recall, but we were first introduced through a a mutual friend uh, that we both have at Proctor. And uh, you introduced me to your HR people. And I had a chance to chat with them a few years back. It was early on in my company's founding. And I think that, you know, you folks were in pretty good shape, but I was so impressed with them. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm trying to remember the woman's name that was their head of HR, but she was just so lovely and, you know, caring. And I just really felt this kind of servant leadership. And I always wondered how much of that came from the top or if, again, it was something that you recruited against there. But it sounded like that feels like that culture was a very special one for you. Well, it, it was. It took, We built it over a long period of time. And the woman yeah. you're talking about, Lynn, Lynn was, right. um, yeah. she was the woman I recruited to drive, drive it deep yeah. in the organization yeah. because our, 
our statement of purpose for the company was to inspire servant leaders to achieve right. superior results. Right, we wanted right. to be a high-performance company that built a case for servant leadership. Yeah. Um, and Lynn turned that idea into the mechanics into action. of yeah. uh, action. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what you saw was true. She was a, a very oh. caring, oh, very gosh. bright and very caring person. Uh, yeah, but she really turned our our purpose into uh, made it come to life with people. Now, was Popeyes a, a privately owned company at the time? Were they um, faith based no, in terms of their that's direction? That's my favorite part of the story. Yeah, we were yeah. a uh, public company. Publicly traded, right? That's what I remember. Yeah. And yeah. when we started as a team in the fall of uh, 2007, the company was really in trouble. Was right, not right. performing. Seven years of declining sales and profitability. Mm. Uh, really in rough shape. And uh, so we were given the opportunity to use these principles, uh, but we were expected to perform just like any other public mm, company. Sure. Uh, so I think what our team is proudest of is uh, not the facts of our success. Like everybody raves that the stock went from you know 12 to $79. That's right, cool. Right. Yeah. But it was how we did it mm. that I think was the story worth telling. Uh, and we basically made our franchise owners the center of every decision we mm, made. That's right. From that yeah. day forward, we served them well. Right, and right. they made a ton of money and their families thrived. And it's the proudest thing on my resume that I say to you is oh, awesome. what happened to those families was yeah, the uh, yeah. proudest accomplishment in my career. And you've written a book, Dare to Serve. In fact, um, my wife and I listened to you. I don't know if you remember, that was the second time we met. I think the first time we met in person at one of the events in New York, and you gave us a book. We actually shared that with our daughter, and she read it. Was that written during your time at Popeye's or, or kind yes. of following that? Yeah, yeah. Yes, the first edition was written at right. Popeye's, and at then Popeyes, the second yeah. edition, uh, which kind of includes a couple chapters that wrap up the story, right. uh, was published after I left Popeye's. Cool. Now, was Faith a part of, you know, kind of the management team? Because, you know, in a publicly traded company, that could be a little um, delicate at times, right, with regards to how that's lived out? Or was it kind of more of an underlying principle that everybody kind of felt and knew was important to you and to your leadership team? Um, I personally explain my principles yeah. to people, yeah. uh, and they are faith-based, and I do it pretty transparently. Right. Uh, but I think people would tell you at Popeye's that they didn't feel pressured by that yeah. or uncomfortable by that. You had a diverse um, workforce, I'm sure, and that was represented from a spirituality standpoint as well, or a belief system standpoint? Absolutely diverse. Yeah, yeah, uh, um, yeah. You know, 40% of our franchisees uh, were immigrant populations from wow. all over the world. Yeah. Um, we had men and women, we had African-American, Asian, and white. We had ev one yeah. of, you know, we had everything represented. Um, but I did do some fairly bold things. Um, for three years, the keynote speaker at our annual conference with our franchise owners was Andy Stanley. Oh yeah. Uh, a great. pastor here in Atlanta yeah, of great sure. renown. Right. Um, so yeah. um, Andy, in my opinion, is a fabulous leadership mm. uh, teacher and he is a fabulous communicator and he was the highest rated speaker at all three of those conventions by people awesome. of every walk of life. Yeah. Now, had he not been uh, you know, I believe we get permission 
to witness our faith by our excellence. Mm. Um, and he is excellent at what he does. And yeah. as a result, no one worried about the fact he was very honest. He said, hey, this example comes from my church. You know, I am a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let me remind you. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah and, the, and the president of our franchise organization was a, a Jewish individual. Yeah, and, yeah. and Howard said, gosh, I can't believe how much I'm learning from this pastor guy. <laughs> Hallelujah. I love it. So, oh, that's um, great. What a wonderful, you know, wonderful you, way to you can, weave that in. You mm -hmm. can do this. You can yeah. talk about John Maxwell's leadership principles. Yeah, yeah. They're incredibly effective and they're biblical. Yeah, um, yeah. You can give an award. I gave a grasshopper award at every company meeting, <laughs> and it comes from a verse in Isaiah that says God has the whole world in his hands, and we mm -hmm. are mere grasshoppers. And I used yeah. it to um, give awards to introverts who were mm. quietly producing superior results, but I always explained the source of the award. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Gosh, it sounds like your knitting, schools from, knitting skills from the age of 12 really came in handy later in life. Huh? You were weaving this together. I heard, it I heard it recently said, Cheryl, that, um, you know, sometimes as a CEO, it can be kind of uncomfortable having your answers questioned rather than your questions always being answered. Uh, have you been in a situation where you face that either at Popeye or most recently in your Pier One experience? Well, I think uh, Brene Brown talks a lot about the importance of vulnerability and transparency mm. and leadership. Yeah. I think she writes fabulously on this topic. She does. Yeah. I think it's the single most important trait mm. of a leader. I, I remember standing up in front of my company and saying, you know, I'm not all that great at finance. And one one individual kind of freaked out and told me after the meeting, she said, you're a CEO you of a public that? company. You can't say that out loud. And I said, well, I actually think I have to say, you know, my natural strength is not finance. It is strategy. Yeah. It is brand. Yeah. It is talent. Yeah. You know, I have yeah. strengths, but I don't have everything under the sun and none of us do. Right. Uh, right. We are better as a company because we have these complementary skills. And so to use transparency as a teaching moment and the, to say, I do not know the answer to that question or mm. I don't know how this is going to turn out is a very important statement of yeah. vulnerability. And it actually brings everybody on the team together with you because they don't That's know true. either. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We don't, we can't see the future. Right. Uh, only God can. And so I, I have Plus, found I think they it, see you, they see your vulnerability too, you know, and they see your humility through that. And I think that's really important in terms of them feeling closer to you because it's hard sometimes, right? You know, you look at the CEO and gosh, you think they're invincible, particularly if you're a 20 something new in the workforce. And I know in the times when I've had my CEO say, gosh, good question. You know, let me get back to you on that. Or, you know, let's, let's talk about that further. It brings you closer. Or best thing you could ever say is, you know, we tried that, but we made a mistake. Right, And sure. uh, yeah. I'm here yeah. to tell you, I was part of that mistake. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Gives well, Cheryl, we've, we've, we've spent so much time and we could talk all day, but I, I know we've taken a lot of yours today. I just have a couple of last questions though, and, and I'd like to just get your opinion. Tell us maybe just in a couple of bullet points, how your leadership style has changed over time. Um, the biggest change in my leadership style is, I would call it, moving from strategy to people. Mm. Um, I still love business strategy, and yeah. I always have a business strategy. Yeah. 
But I have learned and come to really enjoy the fact that strategies never get executed unless you have fabulous, prepared, engaged people. And the fun of leadership is figuring out how to put people's best selves to work. And so I I flipped almost entirely, you know, if if it was an hour on the clock, you know, 10 minutes on strategy, 50 minutes on let's line up the best team with the best engagement to make this happen. Get them in the right seats, make sure they have the right jobs. Yeah. Fantastic. Support them, coach them, be there for them. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? Um, I think skills are the easiest thing, and I think character is the hardest thing to uh, understand. And so um, that um, HR leader, Lynn, taught me a lot about uh, behavioral interviewing and and asking for specific examples of when a character Mm. trait was tested and having people tell you, you you will learn a lot. Uh, You know, it's really easy to say, I'm a person of integrity. Okay, mm-hmm. tell mm-hmm. me when your integrity was truly tested and what did you do? Yeah, yeah. If there's no answer to their question, there might not be any integrity. Yeah, that's true. Um, so that's so I, true. I've become kind of a, a passionate uh, behavioral interviewer around character traits. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, we know that you've moved on from Popeyes and most recently, I think, as you told me, promoted your CFO, speaking of them, into your CEO position at at Pier 1, where you served on an interim basis. You're now doing mostly board work. And if I'm not mistaken, is it Pier 1, U.S. Foods, P&G, as well as Chick-fil-A? Or are those your four major boards? I guess P&G is an advisory board. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, my major boards are Chick-fil-A, U.S. Foods, and Pier 1. And then I serve on a franchising board for Tide Dry Cleaners, which is a- uh, venture of P&G. May I ask, will there be another CEO position someday soon, or are you feeling your career satisfaction with your board work? You know, one of the uh, opportunities you have at my stage of life is to help other teams be as yeah. successful as the team I was right. uh, blessed to experience. And so I really love mentoring senior mm. leaders. And so yeah. Yeah. Uh, board service gives you that opportunity. And sure. um, I do that by coming alongside key executives in these companies. I also do that in the nonprofit sector. I minister six, um, minister, I should say coach. Uh, I coach six uh, executives in nonprofits, four of them Christian ministries and two of them arts organizations. And that has been very rewarding to simply, they they appreciate that you'll give them their time um, to share your experience. And I let them run the session and ask their questions where they need help. And I'm enjoying Is that in the that. Atlanta area or do you do yes. that in, in the locations? Actually, it's Terrific. national. National, yeah. Some yeah. of them are in Atlanta. We had Kyle Wade on the show not too long ago, who's the uh, CEO of the Atlanta Food Bank. And yes. uh, fantastic work they do. Do you, do you know Kyle or have had a chance to look at their I know organization? Of him. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons I love living in Atlanta, yeah. the nonprofit leaders here are amazing, both in Incredible. ministry and in community. Yeah, it's, it's on fire. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. We're having more of them lined up soon. Well, Cheryl, once again, you've been so generous with your time. We do have one last question, though. We ask everyone, and, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give someone who perhaps has their eyes on the corner office someday, maybe in their company or, you know, in a future company they may work for? 
Well, I always said I never was really sure I was going to make it to the corner mm. office. I don't even think that's really worth thinking about too much. Yeah. But be a continuous learner, mm. uh, always taking in, being willing to learn and grow. If you never stop learning and growing, there's a really good chance you're going to go far. Yeah, yeah, so true. Well, Cheryl Batchelder, once again, thank you so much for being our 100th episode guest and uh, sharing your journey, not only into the corner office, but there and beyond. It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.